Hi, I'm Tim Hart. This is Experiencing God. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Experiencing God. Thanks for joining me. This is Tim Hart, and we're in the series on the church. And we're looking more specifically at this question of what is the purpose of church? In the last episode, I identified what I think are three purposes. This comes from reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He identifies these three clearly recognizable purposes of church you find in scripture. Number one is that the church, again, the church being the collective community of all genuine believers for all time. The reason why God created us to live and be in community is so that we would do so coming together to worship him. You know, we know the greatest commandment, as Jesus said, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the greatest commandment, the thing that you and I as followers of Jesus and as believers in God were called to do first and foremost is to live in a love relationship with God. To love God is the greatest commandment. And that's in response to God's love for us. We love him, it says in First John, because he first loved us. So in the last episode, we got into this idea of worship. You know, when you see in the Old Testament, there's times when the congregation of the Israelites would come together and one of their purposes in doing so was to sing praise to God, to extol his name, to worship him, to offer sacrifices, to play instruments. You know, we looked at the tent of meeting and uh, for First Chronicles. We looked at the, uh, later on in the dedication of the temple Second Chronicles 5, and you know, as they come together in ministry to God, one of their primary functions as they assemble and as they gather, you know, we read this all throughout the Psalms, is, is that make music and make melody and sing praise to God and worship and extol his name. And it's, it's actually mirrors what takes place in heaven. You know, just to spend a minute on this, if you look in heaven, you know, the picture is Revelation 4 and 5. You get 24 elders, you get four living creatures. You know, throughout the rest of Revelation, there's scenes where you're seeing things happen on the earth and the unfolding judgments of God at the end of the age. You have the bowls of wrath, the trumpets, you have angels, all this stuff going on. And then you get this, uh, then the scene changes to what they're doing in heaven. And what do you see? The congregation of believers in heaven, the congregation of angels and the 24 elders, they're in heaven and they're worshiping and they're praising God for his righteous judgments, for his acts on the earth, for his wonders. And the things that, like, there's actually, in some cases, it says day and night. They cry out to him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so uh, there's a significant sense that when you're when the, the congregation of God's created order, the angels and human beings who exist in congregation in heaven, one of their primary functions, activities is to stand before the throne of grace and to praise him and worship him and magnify his name. And I kind of think that I have this thought that the, you know, if you and I were to stand in the very presence of God, he was to be completely unveiled and, you know, his majesty and his glory were to be fully revealed to us if we were even able to handle it. The response would be, I can guarantee that we would fall in worship in his presence. It's just the natural response for the created being when it meets the unveiled creator in all his glory and splendor and majesty. The only natural response is for that created being to fall in worship to him. 
And we're actually created for that. We're created to love God, to live in love relationship with him, to be recipients of his love and to worship him and acknowledge him. You know, one, one person said it this way, worship is just simply agreeing with who God says he is in the Bible. You know, he says that he's faithful. Oh, Lord, you're faithful. We praise you. You know, it's this, this agreement with who God has revealed himself to be. We acknowledge him. We extol him because he is worthy of praise. He's good. He created all things. He's powerful. He's omniscient. He's the name above every name. And uh, and so, anyway, that's the first purpose for the church is we see that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There's a significance of coming together in worship and in love to God. Um, the second purpose is going to be very similar. It's that we come together to love each other. There's a second commandment. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. We come together to love each other as the church, but also to build one another up in love. So I want to spend a little bit of time in this episode looking at the second purpose where God created us in community uh, to, to live in community and to build one another up in love. And so uh, we're going to take a moment and look at um, Ephesians 4. If you have a Bible and you want to flip there, you can. Or if you're driving or you're on the treadmill, breaking a sweat, you just want to listen, I'll read it as well as you don't necessarily need to flip open to it. Um, Before I go there, here's one thing I do want to say. I I remember years ago, I was in a church and the pastor was preaching and he, he made this comment, a statement. He said, the Christian faith cannot be lived out on a desert island. That's an interesting thought. I thought about that for a moment when he said it. This is years ago. And, you know, you and I remember the movie Castaway. If you're, I don't know if I'm dating myself there. That's probably a while ago now. But the movie Castaway came out with Tom Hanks. And it's very interesting. He's a guy stranded on this desert island. He has nobody there except for his one friend, the volleyball. He paints a face on it and talks to it. And as a necessary uh, needed that volleyball for some sense of human connection or, or connection with something on some level. And it, it just kind of illustrates this interesting idea of what it, what it, life looks like in solitude and completely detached and separated from society from and from human contact. It's a super interesting movie. If you haven't seen it, there's the plug. You can go rent it or whatever. You're, I don't even know if you can rent it, but there you go. You can go look for it. Uh, but anyway, the, the question then becomes, is it possible to do something like that as a Christian? Can you live out the Christian faith on a desert island? And here's the thing, you know, like if you, you yes, can you be, can you have a saving knowledge of who God is? Can the Holy Spirit work in you to open your heart and to know Jesus, to believe in Jesus and to be made into a new creation and enter into the kingdom of God in eternity? Absolutely, you can do that. But then living out the Christian faith is next to impossible on a desert island. You know, is there such thing as a guy who becomes a follower of Jesus and he gets in a sailboat, sails up to some remote island and just lives out his days in solitude? I would argue that the scripture indicates that it's, it's not possible actually to live fully, live out the Christian faith in solitude, solitary. There's a necessity in this idea of the body, like God has orchestrated things so that we would live together in community. You know, there's other faiths, other religions. It's kind of interesting. You know, you look at, I'm, I'm by no means am I an expert in all the other religions or things like that. But I mean, if you take, uh, for example, Buddhism, I know the kind of very basics of Buddhism, you know, it's this idea of um, you, you adhere to these teachings uh, and this lifestyle. There's this four noble truths. It's the idea that there's suffering that exists, but there's kind of a way out, a path that leads you out of suffering. 
is the general idea. And you know, you adhere to these teachings and you live this lifestyle and you can do that in a very solitary way. You can get the books and read them uh, and you can, you know, do the practices and you can just kind of adopt the belief system. And really at no time does it ever put a strong requirement on you to go and do any of that in the context of a greater community or as part of a body or anything. It's, it's very, this, very much this individualistic, I adopt these spiritual truths, principles or, that I live by and I believe in it. And so, you know, well, can't I do that as a Christian? Can I just read the Bible and have my own relationship with God and not worry about anybody else? Actually, I'd argue that the scripture says that, that it is impossible to live a full relationship with God outside of the context of community. Like the, the sense of the church and being in community and being part of the church is such an integral part of God's unfolding work in the earth that it's it's impossible to subtract yourself from and try and have some expression of Christianity where it's just me and God and I'll go, show, to, show up to church online, listen to a sermon. But other than that, I'm just gonna get my prayer closet and it's me and God. You're actually significantly missing vast amounts of of what it means to live in relationship with God in the context of community and f- walking in things like gifts and calling and bearing fruit and things of that nature. Uh, and so I, I would make an argument here that it's impossible to fully live out the Christian faith outside of the context of community. And so we're looking at the second purpose. God has actually established the church is significantly is is of is significance in the New Testament. The emphasis that is on the church, and and he actually calls us the body of Christ. So we're Christ's body, and there's a necessity that we live and function and operate together. And one of those reasons is so that we will actually love one another, uh, loving each other in the church. You know, this is uh, how we the the love of of God and just how we're known as Christians that they will know we are Christians by our love and that kind of stuff. Uh, But it's also that we strengthen and build one another up. That's one of the functions of the gathering in the congregation of believers. So with all that, I want to look at Ephesians chapter four, and we're going to look a little bit into first Corinthians as well. And so I just want to look at some of Paul's comments that kind of point uh, that illustrate this. And so uh, Ephesians, by the way, chapter one, uh, probably one of the most significant chapters uh, on who we are in Christ and what Christ has accomplished for us and what our identity is in Christ. You know, it's that that um, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're chosen in him since before the foundation of the world to be blameless before him. It says he predestined us for adoption as sons, uh, according to the purpose of his will. It says we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness. He's lavished his grace on us and all wisdom, making known to us the mystery of his will. And it says we have an inheritance. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. And he has given us the promised Holy Spirit. You know, there's this rich chapter in all of what we have as our inheritance in Christ and what, and what our identity is in Christ. And then you get to chapter two, you know, it talks about the state that we were in, dead in sin and trespasses, following the course of the world and the power of the prince of the air. But, you know, it talks about we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy, loved us with a love which, uh, with loving us with the love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, we've been saved, raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places. And it says that it's by grace we were saved. It's not our own doing. Uh, It's a gift of God, not the result of works so that no one can boast. 
You get into chapter three, Paul kind of describes how the mystery of the gospel is made known to him through revelation, and it includes salvation of the Gentiles, and you have the, the prayer at the end to be strengthened in our inner man, to be filled with the knowledge of God's love. And so you have this really rich three chapters about who we are in Christ, what Christ has accomplished, where we are positioned with Christ, and the provision that he's made for us. And flowing out of all that, we get into chapter four, and there's a distinct shift in this chapter where now all of a sudden, it's as opposed to this kind of universal sense of truth, of identity of who we are in Christ and what he's accomplished uh, in our in us and through us, uh, that now it shifts into this emphasis on how this works out in community. And the remaining chapters, actually, Ephesians 4, you know, it goes on in the rest of this chapter discussing what this actually looks like as it un- as it unfolds and as it works itself up in community. In chapter 5, you also get, uh, you know, stuff about there about husbands and wives and all that stuff. And and so the, kind of the remainder of the book is this like, here's what's true about us and here's how this works out from here in community. And so let's look at the beginning of Ephesians 4 here. And I just want to make some uh, observations just from the first few verses. It, it says this in verse 1. It says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Well, let's pause there for a moment. That's the first three verses. Now, this is interesting because, again, Paul's saying, I, therefore, you know, whenever you see the word therefore, it's probably connecting to something that was stated previously. And if, like I said, if you read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Paul has very richly established, like I said, who we are in Christ and, and what our identity is in Christ. And it's kind of like in view of these things, therefore, in me, and I'm even a prisoner for these things, he's like, I'm urging you now to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So he just described what that calling is. And he says, now that you, I've unpacked these things for you, it's actually incumbent on you and how you live and walk matters. It's incumbent on you to walk this out in a manner that is worthy to the calling which you've been called. And look how he describes it. Verse two, he says that it's gonna be with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So what it actually looks like to walk this out is he uses words to describe it. He's like, this is going to require humility and gentleness and patience. Like it's this, it's this idea of this interrelational loving one another, serving one another, laying down our lives for one another, bearing with one another, praying with one another, keeping in unity with one another and being humble and being gentle and being kind and fruit of the spirit. It's like he's describing this culture that's that that you and I need to walk in in the sense in the in the sense of community. That's what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Is that we do so with humility, with gentleness and patience, and all these things, bearing with one another in love, and how we live and interact with one another in community that is centered on love, is actually how it is. It's just it's the script of how we actually walk out uh, all of this in in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Now look at verse four. Paul makes like an unmistakable, it brings the reader to this very clear sense of the unity and the singularity of the body of Christ. Verse four, he says, there is one body and 
one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And it says, verse seven, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So if you start back at verse four, I mean, the number one, the word one, O-N-E, one is repeated something like seven times. There is just such an incredible emphasis on the oneness and the singularity of the body. So Paul is very unmistakably drawing the believe or the, the reader's focus and attention to the fact that there is one single universal church. We're very unmistakably, it's one church. It is not a bunch of different churches that are just doing their own thing that are disconnected, but there is just such a profound and strong emphasis on the idea that we are one church. Now, you and I, if you've been in a church at all, you know, Sunday mornings, you grew up in Sunday school, listened to sermons on Sunday mornings, whatever, you have undoubtedly heard many times in sermons and from pastors and teachers, something that says, you know, there, there's the we're, the church globally, there's the church universally, the capital C church. You know, there's all these small churches, but there's the big church and we're all part of the one big church. And we've all kind of heard that mention. But I just want to like ask you here for a moment to let this sink in that Paul is very clearly drawing the reader to a to 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 adopt this mentality that the church truly is universal and singular that we are one in one in body and in spirit one there's one hope there's one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all like there, there's just a significance and repetition of the word one that he he's really emphasizing here and so I think I think what that means is that Paul Paul wants every believer to understand that they are part of not one local church but they're part of one universal church. And here's what that means. I mean, think about this for a minute. If you if it's, maybe you're in a Episcopalian church or an Anglican church, maybe you're in a Lutheran church, maybe you're part of a Pentecostal or Assemblies of God church or Vineyard church. I mean, wherever church you're in, think about this for a moment. The the, the Pentecostal church down in Florida. You know, and the Spirit's working there and someone's prophesying. And, and then you go over to the Lutheran church over here and someone is being deeply convicted in sin as they administer the sacraments and communion. And you go over to the Baptist church and there's a Spirit upon the pastors. He's preaching the Word of God with a power. I mean, you go to any one of these churches, it is the exact same Spirit that is working, doing miracles in the Pentecostal church down in Florida, that's, that's convicting the heart of sin over here, that's empowering the preaching of the word over here, the same exact spirit, there's no difference to the spirit. He's the same spirit that works in all of these places. It works through all of the spiritual gifts and all of the ministries. Like we really, we think of ourselves, well, there's the Presbyterians down the street. We have nothing to do with them because we're, you know, the Baptists or we're the Pentecostals and there's the Anglicans. Like we, we, we tend to, kind of separate ourselves and our history is such that churches have taken on these different shapes and forms and you know even the word denominational and denominational means to to separate and cut something off and in fact what you'll find you go to some church their church organizations they're not actually calling themselves 
denominations anymore. In fact, they resist that because they're like, no, we don't think of ourselves as cutting away and breaking away from the body of Christ, but we call ourselves an association. We're, we're a group of like-minded believers who have similar passions and emphasis, and we work together collaboratively as part of the larger body of Christ. It's kind of some of the language that you hear more. You actually come, they're coming, a lot of these church organizations and what used to be called denominations are coming away from that language to say, no, we actually recognize we're part of the larger body of Christ. But it really is significant that, you know, we get, whether you go to a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church or a Lutheran church, when you worship the Lord, Jesus, we all worship one Lord. We all believe and put our faith in one Lord, Jesus, who died for us. There's one faith. There's one baptism. Whether you're baptized in, in a river in Africa or you're baptized in a hot tub in uh, California, it, it does not matter where you were baptized. The baptism that happens, this imagery of dying with Christ and being raised up and being washed and cleansed and new creations in Christ through the symbol of baptism and entrance into the kingdom of God. It is the same baptism, whether it's in a pond, in a river, in the ocean, whether it's in this country, that country. And there's one God and Father over all who is in all and through all. And, and so Paul is really calling the reader to understand as much as maybe you're part of this particular church, that particular church, you are unavoidably part of a, of a universal Church, and, and it seems that he wants the reader of this letter, the Ephesians, who he calls saints, these saints to read this and have this understanding. They're not distinct. They're not their own little thing and God's working in them and who cares about anybody else. They are part of the larger universal body of Christ and there's such an emphasis on that oneness. So here we, here we have that. This is the significance of this idea of the church and the body of Christ that God has put together and unity is one of God's highest priorities. In fact, you know, as he closes out the first three verses, he's describing these things like humility and gentleness and patience, bearing one another in love. This is how you get to the result here, which is to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond, uh, uh, in the bond of peace. Like unity and oneness within the church is one of God's highest priorities. In fact, that's evident even as you read in John 17, you know, before his crucifixion, Jesus goes into the lengthy prayer, the uh, the high priestly prayer, sometimes called the prayer of Jesus. And if you read that prayer of Jesus, one of the primary themes emphasizes, I pray, Father, that they would be one in me as I am one in you. That Jesus is his cent- the central prayer of Jesus is that his body and his disciples and his church would be one, would be one. Paul has a similar prayer in Romans 15. Uh, actually, if you even want to just flip open, oh, flip over to, let's read it. Romans chapter 15, there's actually two prayers of Paul in this passage, but um, he says he says this earlier, I think it's in verse uh, um, five. Yeah, it says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So even Paul, he, he imitates the prayer of Jesus in this prayer for unity and oneness within the church in Jesus' prayer of John 17, of course. There's just this incredible emphasis on the unity and the oneness of the church and that God's, Jesus' own prayer, God's prayer for his church is that we would be one. 
So Paul opens these, you know, a couple of verses, you know, this is how we are to live in response to what God has done for us and who we are in Christ and who our identity is. Uh, you know, and this is, this is uh, w- w- the, the emphasis on we're one body and we're, we're one church together with one Lord, and one faith, and one baptism. Well, in verse seven, now there's a bit of a pivot that happens. And he says this, but grace was given to each one. Okay, now interesting, he's actually uh, honing in on individuals now, as opposed to talking about the larger one body of Christ, he's now speaking about individual believers. And he says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, that's a very interesting verse. Uh, there's a very similar verse in Romans 12, 3, where it talks that, about believers, you know, you should not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to, but be sober-minded and each in, in accordance with the measure of faith assigned to you is the idea. It's very similar, but the idea is that grace is actually given to each individual member of the body of Christ. And it's given in measure. And it's the measure is according to Christ's gifts. What Christ has determined, he gives in measure. That, that means that not all members of the body of Christ actually receive the, the same measure of grace. Now, in the sense of like salvific faith, we do. We're, when we enter into the grace of God where we're saved from sin, that's, that's universal for all believers. But then there's something here where it says that he gives grace to each one of us, but there's something about a measure of Christ's gift. And now this leads into some discussion on some ministries and spiritual gifts. So he says, um, goes on to say that Jesus ascended on high. He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men, which is sort of a partial quote from uh, Psalm 68. Uh, talks about how he descended to the lower regions of the earth and then he ascended far above the heavens. And then it says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So he's describing now these different roles of ministry and spiritual gifts and so he's, yeah, which is tying to verse seven, the shift of, okay, here's now a change where we're now talking about the individual grace given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And, and, and he gave apostles, he gave prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. And these were given, verse 12, this is where I want to focus in. It says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until... We all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human coming, cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the end of verse 16. So let's go back. We have this grace that's given. It's given in measure. And what it looks like is these different areas of ministry and spiritual gifts. Uh, I think that that's what he means when he's shifting to this individual grace. And he goes in to talk about these different ministries and gifts. And, you know, we've talked at length about those in previous episodes. If you want to unpack those a little more thoroughly, you can go back and listen to some of my uh, previous episodes in the Spiritual Gifts series. Um, but for the purposes of this message, I want to focus on the, the next part, which is the idea that this is so that the saints would be equipped for the works of ministry. So God gives these different ministries and these different spiritual gifts for the purpose of the church being strengthened and equipped for the work of ministry. So that's one of the reasons 
why we gather together as Christians and as believers, we come together. And then when we come together, there is these different expressions of some gifts and ministries that are for the purpose of strengthening and building up and equipping the body of Christ. Now, it is interesting to note in verse 13, it says that this, by the way, is going to continue until, like underline the word until. And then look at, look, look at the following verses here. So this is going to continue until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Listen to that again. It's until we all, remember, he's talking about the whole body of Christ earlier on, but until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And it says we're no longer children and, and so on from there. But it, and then it talks about the body grows and builds itself up in love. Uh, but I just want to highlight a couple of those phrases there. This the idea that it's going to continue on until we attain unity of the faith and a knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood in the measure to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a very similar, actually parallel to something that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, if you remember 1 Corinthians 13, it's that verse, it's the sorry, chapter on love, and it's sandwiched between the conversation on spiritual gifts. And Paul basically starts off by saying, you know, if you have these gifts of tongues or prophecy or knowledge and you don't have love, none of these things matter. Then maybe the verse that reads at everyone's wedding, love is patient and kind, and just description of what love looks like when it's there, when it's present. And at the end, we get this little interesting section, verses 8 to 13. And Paul says this, he says, love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So I won't take a lot of time on this. I mean, I have covered this on a previous episode, uh, this chapter, I think it's in a uh, um, part five of the spiritual gift series. Um, but basically what's happening here is Paul is describing a time when the spiritual gifts are going to come to an end. And that's kind of like in Ephesians when it says, you know, this is going to continue until this is, in other words, this is going to keep going until we reach this point. And then, you know, Paul describes in Ephesians four, like I said, the, uh, you, we all attain unity of the faith and knowledge of the son of God and to mature manhood and to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Uh, but here he's saying, he, he's saying that, you know, that we know in part, we prophesy in part, when perfection comes, these things like prophecy and knowledge and tongues are actually going to pass away. And then he uses the same, he parallels this to the idea of childhood versus mature manhood. So he says, when I was a child, basically I did childish things. I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child, you know, played Lego or whatever. Although some adults do play Lego, to be fair. I actually have a boss who does. So anyway, uh, but not the point of what I'm saying. The idea is that when you're a child, you do these childish things, but when you become a man, you give up the childish ways. So there's things that are in place when you're not mature, when you're a child. And then as you reach maturity, there's things that pass away. And that's the whole context of what he's saying is these things that are going to pass away. So, so in other words, these spiritual gifts and ministries continue until, like Paul says here, until I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And, uh, and he says, you know, we see in a mirror dimly right now, but then face to face. And now we know in part, but then we shall fully know, even as we have been fully known. And so what is that talking about? Well, you know, uh, there's some dispute on that, although 
it's very clear, as I've read and studied this, it's very clear this is referring to uh, the, the, the maturity of faith and the fullness of the stature of Christ and the knowledge of God and unity. Like this is all the, the point of maturity we get to when Christ returns. This is like the mature bride of Christ presented to Christ at his return. And, and so when it says things like, you know, now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face, if you actually study the phrase face to face and look at it throughout, um, you know, back in Judges 6 and in um, various places throughout the Old Testament, Numbers 12, I think, or 13. Uh, but there's there's a several places where this face-to-face, it actually means meeting with God face-to-face, you know? Not seeing dimly or faintly, but then face-to-face. Actually speaking about Jesus' return. And we know that because 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, you know, you, that I, you do not lack in any spiritual gift as you eagerly await the revealing of Christ. In other words, the return of Jesus. So in both of these passages, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 13, we get this sense that these minis- the ministry of these spiritual gifts and these roles of ministry are going to take place until there's something that's described as a mature manhood and a fullness of unity and a knowledge of the Son of God and the, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Like, there's, a, there's a perfection almost described there that these ministries work until we reach there. So this is one of the primary reasons we come together as a church is so that this will happen. So the different parts of the body come together and it says that, um, you know, from when it's joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part's working properly, it makes the body grow up, uh, grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so one of the things that God has ordained in the gathering and the congregating of the church is that it would do just that. It would strengthen itself and build itself up. I want to look at one other passage of scripture that's on this topic, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, We won't go through the whole chapter. There's a lot of nuances there in terms of describing um, the gift of speaking in tongues and comparing it to prophecy and those kind of things. I just want to look at some of the broad strokes of Paul in this passage. And it starts off in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 14. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. He enters mysteries in the spirit. But on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So he goes on to contrast these two gifts of prophecy and tongues. And he's basically saying, you know, uh, tongues is, is good. It, you know, the person who prays or speaks in tongues, he's uttering mysteries. It's not really for anybody else. Uh, he builds himself up. But the one who prophesies actually builds up the church. And so, you know, Paul exhorts. He says, I, I, you know, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Because it's the one who prophesies is greater than the one who uh, speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So he goes on, later on, he actually says in verse 12, you know, the exhortation is he, he wants the church to, to, to pursue and desire spiritual gifts, but particularly the ones that build up and strengthen the church. He says in verse 12, uh, he's like, you know, since you're eager for manifestations of the spirit, he says, strive to excel in building up the church. So it goes on to describe uh, a few more things about that. And then the, the other part I want to look at here in this chapter is verse 26. It says, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. He goes on to describe that if there's anyone who speaks in tongues, there should be two or at the most three. They should all do it in turn. Someone should interpret. And if there's no interpreter, let that person sit down and speak only to himself and God. And then he says, you know, let two or three prophets speak and the others should wait carefully what is said. He goes on to kind of describe how this works in a uh, congregational setting. 
But here's, here's the emphasis. The, the, the point of this little passage here is this idea that when you come together as the church and you congregate, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Remember, it says each one, like every single part of the body has some area where they've received grace from God, according to the measure of Christ's gift, where he's equipped them and empowered them to contribute to the body for the common good, to build up and strengthen the body in these various different ways, whether it's through singing, through hymns or worship songs, or whether it's through teaching or a lesson, or if it's through revelation or prophecy, or if it's through tongues and interpretation. And then he says, let all things be done for building up. In fact, if I remember correctly, I had a translation of the NIV uh, some years ago, and it, I'm pretty sure the verse there, it actually said, uh, all of these must be done for the building up of the church. It may not have been NIV, it might have been another translation, but one translation said, "Let uh, all of these must be done for the building up of the church. In other words, we need these various members of the body and the different grace they have and contributions they have to serve and to function as members of the body to build up the body of Christ in love. And uh, back in chapter 12, um, Paul kind of mentioned something similar. And he just says, um, you know, he says that uh, the eye, he says things like this, like the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. He, he, uh, he says that, you know, uh, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Where, if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? And as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So he's saying, you know, it's a, there's a necessity that when the body comes together, that the different parts of the body function together. Because he's saying if the body only had one of its functions, like seeing, it would be missing a lot. It would be missing a sense of hearing and smell and so on. And, he's, and he says that the different parts of the body cannot say to one another, I have no need of you. Uh, but the different parts of the body are, need each other to come together and to function together as the body so that it builds itself up in love and it's strengthened and it's edified. And, it's, and, and until, like I said, Ephesians 4, until we reach all reach the unity of the faith and mature manhood and the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. And you know, th- this is what this is unto. It's actually about maturing and strengthening and growing the body of Christ into maturity, into him who's the head, into Christ. So uh, with all of that said, I, this is what is the second purpose of the church. Again, the first purpose being we come together to love God and worship. Um, the second is that we come together to live in love with one another in relationships, again, that's, you know, in view of what God has done, as I mentioned in Ephesians 4, we live in gentleness and in patience and making every effort to keep the spirit of unity through the bond of peace, living in peace with one another. We love one another. We live in love relationships and community and unity. And and we do so so that these different areas of ministry and gifts function so that we're built up and so we mature in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and this is going to continue until Jesus returns. So it's one of the primary um, reasons why God has orchestrated the church to come together in community and in congregation is that it would build itself up in love. Now that brings up a question. It was like, well, you know, Sunday morning church. Well, some people kind of, to be honest with you, sometimes there's a little bit of confusion Sunday morning. Uh, why are we doing this? Like, you know, some churches actually back in the 90s and in the 80s even, uh, you know, they started to turn Sunday morning services far more into an evangelistic 
outreach. Like, you know, we'd, we're, we'll be careful in the messages not to say anything too intense and we'll have a fancy latte machine in the lobby and do it in a movie theater so it doesn't look like a church building so people aren't freaked out. So they'll come in the door and what would happen is people would show up and they would come to church and, you know, the, the, a lot of times the messages would be in topics like what we call apologetics, which is really sort of like answering some some questions that people might raise. Like, well, what about evolution, all that stuff? And so, you know, the messages would be geared to those who are seeking or maybe exploring or asking questions, but really those who aren't believers, who are exploring the Christian faith. Now, while that was in, in some ways good, right? It gave people an opportunity for somewhere to come and ask questions and connecting community. Well, what ended up happening is you multiply that over several years, those churches never grew in maturity. Like, you know, they, they would get stuck at this sort of level of immaturity where they could get people in the door. They could get them talking about Jesus and asking questions and even sharing the gospel. Uh, but then beyond that, there wasn't a lot in the area of strengthening and growth. And so these churches realized that. And then a lot of them would implement things like home churches and they would kind of make their Sunday mornings the evangelistic outreach. And then they would say, okay, well, you know, for those who are believers, like connect into a house church or a small group where then you'll get some depth and go into the scripture more and develop a depth of faith and relationship with one another and with God. And so, but it's interesting that, uh, you know, in, in some cases, there's some history of people turning Sunday morning church services into more of an evangelistic focus. Well, it seems from what we read here from Paul in Ephesians 4, we read in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14, it, it seems that when the church comes together, it is for it seems to be that it's for worship to God, but it's also for um, strengthening and building itself up in love. And, and so when we come together, that's why you'll find there's, you know, preaching from the Bible and there's prayer and there's worship. It's like we're fulfilling the mandate of God as revealed in scripture to come together to strengthen and build up and edify the body of Christ. That's his kind of primary function and purpose. For Sunday mornings. Not to say that, you know, I mean, in our North American context, I don't know where you're listening from, but in North America, I mean, one of the primary ways people uh, share the gospel with friends is they say to them, hey, do you want to come to church on Sunday? And they kind of leave it up to the message, the pastor to kind of, uh, you know, open up the scripture and, and talk about Jesus and share the gospel. And so, I mean, really, our church services are, in effect, partly evangelistic. And so, I mean, of course, we should have parts of our service which are geared towards those who don't know Jesus. There's maybe going to be a few people and should include the gospel and things. But 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 it's the primary focus of coming together and gathering together in congregation, like on Sunday mornings in a church service and in worship, is that the church would be built up, build one another up in love, and we exist to love God and worship God together. So thank you for joining me, for tuning in. I uh, hope you found this insightful and helpful. And uh, next episode, we're going to look at that final purpose of the church, which is the missional side, which is the part where we actually do go into the nations, make disciples of all nations, and how we work collaboratively for that. So stay tuned. There'll be more to come.